gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, Episode 5, another review segment for Friday, December 27th, 2013. It is still the week of Christmas. We are still gallivanting around and we have another review of a new release for you because there are so many movies in theaters right now. Except this and one's a piece a- of shit. And Well, there are a lot of great ones, but we're going to review Saving Mr. Banks instead. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. Not, uh, I don't know what other piece of shit you were referring to. I guess there are a couple. To There's a couple actually coming out around Christmas. We, time, we may so. get to those later. Uh, but Saving <laughs> Mr. Banks is probably the one you've seen the most ads for because it's been all over the place. And Tom Hanks' Walt Disney is kind of an irresistible thing for people who cut trailers. Uh, it's a story of how Mary Poppins got made. The suspense in this movie is whether or not Mary Poppins will be made. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> it does get made. Uh, Emma Thompson plays P.L. Traver- Travers, who is the woman, who's the author of Mary Poppins. Uh, Disney spent about 30 years trying to give her, get her to give the rights to make the movie. She comes to Los Angeles. She, he tries to persuade her. Meanwhile, we also flash, flash back to her childhood in Australia in which Colin Farrell is her alcoholic father. And uh, this is in that. She led the most boring life of all time, apparently. Well, and she also, uh, there's a, early in the movie, we see her have an aversion to pears. And basically, it's the backstory of why she doesn't like pears among uh, <laughs> other choice <laughs> of alcoholic father stories. Very um, compelling. I want to say I, before, yeah, wait, before we on. start with this, I walked out of that movie frustrated with it, but not full of loathing. But it does sound like the tide has turned amongst Patches, who I saw it with at least. Like, I, I don't feel that much rage toward this movie, but it is really amusing. I was pretty enraged when we walked out yeah. of the movie theater, if you recall. It is an incredibly frustrating movie. If only, I mean, even aside from the filmmaking, the fact that P.L. Travers, the real one, hated the movie and never really came around to liking it. And uh, the movie kind of just pretends that didn't happen, which well, let's, is completely let's, bizarre. Okay. I think, I think the filmmaking is bad in this movie, and, and we, should, we should get to that because we can go on and on about Disney self-mythologizing itself. And it might be more acceptable if at least the movie had a, an ounce of charm or, an, or, or stakes at all, if it wasn't completely contrived. You can, you can masturbate uh, yourself and appreciate yourself, uh, but oh, you, wow. can't, okay. you can't just do it – with, without finesse, you know. Are you Matthew McConaughey of Wolf of Wall Street giving <laughs> us advice? <laughs> Masturbate. Masturbate. <laughs> God. Um, I would argue that it does have some charm just because I like Tom Hanks as Walt Disney. But, I, I mean, John Lee Hancock, director of The Blind Side, somehow has turned in a not great movie. I don't know why we're all You know where the charm of this movie comes from? Um, from songs written for Mary Poppins, the yeah. good movie. Yep. And there being... is a great – so there, there's B.J. Novak and uh, – Jason Schwartzman is playing the Sherman brothers who wrote the songs for Mary Poppins. And they're kind of holed up in this room with P.L. Travers and uh, whoever the guy that Bradley Whitford is playing. Don DeGrotti. Uh, there we go. Uh, trying to hammer out songs oh, for the I movie. Forgot. Wait, Bradley Whit. I completely forgot that Bradley Whitford is in the movie. <laughs> He's the best part. Him no, and is the best part. That's true. That's true. Um, anyway, so yeah, there's a bunch of songs by the Sherman brothers. There's a scene where they all sing Let's Go Fly a Kite, which is uh, very cute. Uh, David, lay into this movie. You can't stand it. I fucking hated this movie. I <laughs> I was like crawling out of my skin in this movie. Like Me it's too. not like I just like, oh, this is detestable filmmaking. Like it was just it was such agony to watch. I wanted to scream. I wanted to run out of the theater, but I was unfortunately in a situation where I could not do that. Um, it is terrible. I mean, okay, so essentially 
the movie uh, is based around a much ballyhooed script by Kelly and Marcel. Uh, and I'm sure Miss Marcel is a lovely human being, but lovely. she. If this this if the script is any indication, she really does not deserve the attention that has been thrown her way. Uh, well, there's no well, evidence that that is the script that she. No, wrote. the script is got all, and it doesn't even matter. It's like the task is to dramatize something that's not dramatic. It's it's not right, I, I, the, the script. It, I think is fine. It really tries to carve something out of this. Delivered was structured in this way, then I would argue that it is not fine. Uh, the movie relies on a very schematic flashback structure where you see a scene in the present. Follow, or actually, to go in the proper order, you see a scene set when Peel Trappers was a child uh, in Australia with her magically magical drunk father, Colin Farrell, uh, <laughs> as they move to some border town or whatever in the middle of nowhere. And then those are – Which is very with, Finding Neverland-esque, which I'm not sure is the tone anyone should be reaching for. And but. this movie actually manages to make Finding Neverland look good. <laughs> Um, and, and so they're intercut with scenes with the present in finger quotes, which is like 1960, whatever it was, uh, where Peel Travers is being courted by Walt Disney to have his movie made because he promised his daughters, blah, blah, blah. He smokes. Oh my God, he must be awful. That's the one concession we're making anyway. Um, and every time, and I'm, I'm not saying that the things that take place in the movie's present are interesting, but every time they cut back to Australia to see in a, in a Finding Neverland meets Slumdog Millionaire sort of way where all these things that happened to her as a child pertain to her life as an adult, the movie just dies on the table. I mean, it's like there is nothing interesting happened there. Any momentum that they're building uh, in, in the 60s is just flat lines. I think, they they make, I think they use it to make Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks better. Like, they don't have anything going on in their side of the movie, but if there's actually something interspersed that's horrible, horribly worse, you know, <laughs> then they look much better. It actually frustrated me because I thought they were both so charming that I liked seeing them kind of spar with each other. I wanted a movie actually about them and not using these flashbacks to explain to me why she feels things. Because she's a frigid British lady who can't talk about her feelings and therefore the movie doesn't know what to do with her. Yeah, she should be able to convey what these backstory or these flashbacks are And you doing. know that Emma Thompson could. Yeah. and But, well, the other problem is... You know, a lot of that could be. She really is, but it's relentless. It's relentless. I mean, everything that P.L. Travers does in this movie is just, you know, being picky or or sticking to her gut and and not wanting to uh, bend over backwards for Disney and feeling icky in the whole Disney sugary sugar coated Disney world. And she doesn't want to be there. And but after a while, it's relentless. And then all of a sudden, she has a turn. And then she's better. And now we're gonna make Mary Poppins. It doesn't. It really doesn't. She misses her father. Yeah, and it doesn't really have a flow. But what's interesting about the movie is how oppressive the Disney attitude is. You know, she shows up to a hotel room and there's giant Mickey Mouse stuffed animals and all sorts of chocolates and baskets. These people don't understand this woman at all, and they're not trying to. Uh, they're just trying to drown her in the Disney magic. And if if this movie had any guts, it would be about that in some way. About taking taking you know someone's beloved material and transforming it into a Disney movie. But no, Mary Poppins is sacred text, the movie that is. And they can't they can't show it as as a kind of terrifying prospect for the author of a book. Um, she has to be wrong. She has to be changed by Walt Disney, this mythic man. And that's not the relationship of a great movie. And it's not the relationship. It's not true. And you can yeah. tell. You can just feel like I don't need to know the true history of this story. No. And I really don't. I just can tell it's false from watching. And it. how self-satisfied is the whole thing where they're just like, oh, we're bringing you this great bit of Hollywood history. And it's just like this feeling that you should you should be delighted to be exposed 
introduced to these people who created these this mythic and yet, you know, character. You have Paul Giamatti playing Ralph, the driver, who he has this outsider and comes out the best because like, yeah. he's Paul Giamatti. I think it's because so he's an outsider. I mean, he at least has perspectives. They have a conversation. Peel Travers at some point retreats outside the lot and is playing in the grass because she's oh a psychopath? God. I don't know. Oh, my God. Because uh, so she's regressed to her five-year-old self and she's building forts in the in the lawn fort. of the Disney animation studio. I have no idea. But at least Paul Giamatti comes to the rescue and has like a heart-to-heart conversation with her about how this world has changed his life or how her books have, you know, he is an emotional figure because he's an outsider to Disney. And that's what this movie needs, not the full Disney crew oppressing her. Yeah. And he's really good. I mean, Paul Giamatti is just fucking good in everything. It yeah. really saves the movie. Well, no, it doesn't. He saves Mr. Banks. The other annoying thing in this flashback. Now, here's something that I, I was intrigued by. There's many things that I'm intrigued by in Saving Mr. Banks. One is uh, they introduce, you know, when, when her P.L. Travers' alcoholic father is kind of dying in their house. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah, whatever. We all know it. Uh, their Aunt Ellie comes over, played by Rachel Griffiths, and she's very Mary Poppins-esque. And like, I was, yeah, she has a big carpet bag. She has lots of rules. But like, that's at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's so, super weird. So why – how did she come up with the idea for Mary Poppins? Like where is this all coming from and why is this important? Or you know, it's annoying to hear them keep talking about how they're trying to wrangle Travers for 30 years and all we get to see is this one last meeting. Like, what has been going on for 30 years? What What has Walt Disney been doing? I don't know Walt Disney at all from this movie. Who is this man? And, you know, he has a family. He promised his little girls that he wants to make Mary Poppins into a movie. And that's all I know about him. But, but that's yet- like clearly not the reason, which is what's which is kind of what I was waiting for them to get into. Like, sure, he promised his little girls he would make the movie. But, like, he's a, he's a moneymaker. He wants to make money off of this thing. Right. The movie doesn't even it's have the magic, guts to acknowledge that. Katie, don't you understand? He He's so good. Oh, I just made a promise to my two daughters, you see. And when I make a promise to them, I've got to deliver. You're in the happiest place on earth. Fuck this movie. It's so bad. <laughs> and his it's final, his so final, bad. like the 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 death stroke that he uh, hits Emma Thompson with in this movie, just like the one scene people can't stop talking about. It's such it an Oscar-worthy a, scene. I, I thought it was a good scene. I mean, it's because Tom Hanks is a good scene? actor, but it's, it's the still... The one where he goes to England to go talk to her. It's still manipulative. It's still like a oh, conniving move. And it's I played. I don't remember. I mean, I remember when he flies to England, but I, and just thinking, like, wow, that flight is really long. He just he has discovered <laughs> he's discovered the truth of the flashbacks that we've known uh, the whole time. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. He's like, I figured you out. You see, <laughs> this you. is why you don't eat pears. Nah. Oh my god. I talking uh, like Ricky Robinson now. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, are we going to talk about 47 Ronin? Because I was about to make some Wait, I, I, I want to. Uh, oh, I wasn't going to transition away from it. I was just going to say that, like, you know, there are very bad movies, but there are some. There, I think it's the gutlessness that Patches was talking about. This movie just feels so tepid and lazy and self-satisfied that it just makes you hate it and and really just not want to be there. And there's something like 47 Ronin, which apparently we'll talk about shortly, which is you know detestable and has nothing going for it. But <laughs> at the same time. It's just like this movie's insidious. Such a, yeah, this movie is like Two. bad in a moral way. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Katie, were you going to say something about no, this? No, I, th- I thought you were. Oh, yeah. I wanted to say one thing. You know, I wanted to write a piece about this. I just lost time. I, you know, but um, I think when I, we walked out of the movie, Katie, I was very angry about kind of an outsider 
perspective, I suppose, that's not really, it's it's certainly not a read of the movie, but it angers me about the movie in that as someone who appreciates film and, and keeps an eye on the studios and, and wants great movies to come out of even major studios like Disney, it's infuriating to me that they would dare uh, self-mythologize, you know, transforming a book into a magical Disney movie and 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 you know they have such a love for this text and they want to make this great film from years ago decades ago now um and when they're certainly not in that business at all anymore this is not the oh, Disney yeah. that exists at all i mean it sort of is because they just want to take properties and transform them into Disney movies yeah. but this is not the magic of that. Like, a, a great song. Who, there's no Sherman Brothers at Disney right now. There's no Walt Disney Robert at Disney. Lopez, Frozen. Get a life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just... The name of the song from Frozen? Let It, let go, it go, which is let what Katie go. really needs to do. Get a life. Uh, get a life. <laughs> but it's, it's infuriating that the magic of Disney, that this movie, um, you know parades around it just does, does not exist in the business model they're in it exists anymore in the theme parks Go to not the- does it i mean i haven't been to a disney theme park in a long time but you There's know they take a fun. stroll down the disney park and you, you i guess you feel a little of that that wonderment but are any of their movies providing that no i don't think thor the dark world you know we're gonna be making a movie or in 10 no 20 years from now the making of star wars episode 7 we couldn't convince jj to direct it that's I mean, that's just not the sort of thing you're going to make a movie about. And then again, they shouldn't have made a movie about the making of Mary Poppins. So Yeah, because it's not a good story. Like, it's one that ends sadly. And uh, yeah, it's pretty ballsy. Oh, I'm going to laugh really hard when this wins Best Picture and then we all just... Don't... Have to... it, no, I think... It would be oh, hilarious. Truly, truly, if that happened, then I am... Oh, the Oscar prognosticators are saying no now. That people do not like the movie. Thank I God. still think it would be hilarious. This seems like something like King's Speech. It's like okay, I didn't especially care for it, but it has like some merits, and there, there, you can sense in the water that some people are enjoying it. I mean, I think this movie, uh, which seemed like a line drive to the point where there was just going to be a portion of the audience that was guaranteed to enjoy, it. it's really just down to like your mom's friend. Who is yeah. maybe liking this movie? Somewhat. You think even your mom won't like it? No, your, your mom will not discerning. like it. <laughs> you gotta really like Disney, I think, to appreciate this movie and be blinded by your love for Disney. There are a lot of people who feel that way about Disney. No, I, there are. I, I know many like forty-year-old men who go to Disney every weekend for some reason. Or like those people who have their uh, vacation home, or like they have they live in a Disney. Oh yeah, timeshares. I have family yeah. members. Oh no, like there's a whole Disney subdivision where like you live in a in property that is Disney World. It's insane. Oh yes, I've seen those. They're like mansions. You can yeah. live. Oh boy. Yeah. So for all of those people, I'm more interested in that story. Those people. Yeah. Well, there's always escape the Queen of Versailles, but in the people who live in Disney World. Pitch. So when the cat has got your tongue, there's no need for dismay. Just summon up this word, and then you've got a lot to say. But better use it carefully, or it could change your life. For example? Uh, yes? One night I said it to me girl, and now me girl's me wife. Oh, and a lovely thing she is, too. <laughs> She's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 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 David, tell me about 47 Ronin. <laughs> 47 Ronin is an ignorant, racist piece of shit that was <laughs> greenlit by the most 
Uh, I mean, nobody works in this town anymore. Let me tell you. I mean, the the you know, uh, you don't really necessarily want to let a story's production saga affect your viewing of the movie, and certainly not your review of the movie. But when it is clearly apparent in the movie, and even if you had been living in a cave for the past few years, you would have seen the film and immediately assumed that it had a sort of troubled production history, uh, if only as a kindness to the people involved to somehow <laughs> absolve them of doing this voluntarily. Uh, it, it 47 Ronin is one of the most famous folkloric stories in all of Japanese history. It is a story about 47 samurai. No, not yet. 47 samurai who serve a master who uh, assaults somebody who offends him and uh, is forced to kill himself. And when the master kills himself, the 47 samurai become ronin, masterless samurai, which is, um, you know, like any sort of caste system, the lowest tier. It is not an honorable place to be. Uh, and it's it's no life for these people. But over the course of two years, and this is reflected in the film as well, they got together and they wanted to avenge their master's death because they could not live uh, with the world out of balance in that way. And so they got together and they killed their uh, the the person who offended the master. And then they all ritualistically took their own lives, they committed harakiri or seppuku, uh, because they had, you know infringed Japanese society and that was but it was an honorable death. I mean that's that's what they wanted was the ability to commit to kill themselves with honor. That's the story. Uh it's it's very, very famous in Japan. There have been a number of classic films made about it. It's often referred to as the Chushingura. Mizuguchi made a film of it. Um, you know, this is this is legendary stuff. So why not make an 175 million dollar? <laughs> yeah, is there a version for me <laughs> starring a white man? I mean, whatever they refer to him as a half breed, Keanu Reeves. Uh, you know, I think he's a Hapa or like a quarter Japanese in real life, but he is. I think most of the world identifies him as white. Uh, and anyway, is a complete you know a new addition to the story and is naturally the hero and in a way much more egregious than you see in something like The Last Samurai, which is egregious enough to begin with. You have this white man riding to the rescue. And they say in the opening narration of this movie, which was greenlit for $175 million, handed down to a first-time feature director named Carl Eric Rinch, um, or the Rinch Who Stole Christmas. Hey, he, he directed a, a robot chase movie that went viral on YouTube. I think he should make uh, a movie. Great. Yeah, uh, and, then, and then the budget quickly ballooned to a reported $225 million. It was delayed and he lost control of it. And it was edited by the chairman of Universal. Disaster. Who doesn't anyway. know how to edit, probably. I guess. Oh, yeah. I think that's uh, part of chairman's training school. In the opening monologue of this movie, in the voiceover, they say that the for- story of the 47 Ronin is the story of Japan. So Boy. what follows is a, a white man saving Japanese and slowly like a reverse 12 years a slave sort of all of the characters who are the heroes, the 47 Ronin, who you never learn to identify beyond like the fat one, the thin one, whatever, walk up to him and apologize for being racist over the course of the movie. Uh, but the movie is set in a magical world, a magical Japan that looks a lot like CGI'd Hungary. Cause that's where it was shot uh, against a green screen in Hungary. Um, and there are dragons and witches, Rinko Kikuchi. What? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the trailer is very true to the spirit of the movie, if you want to watch that, um, but a lot shorter. The only person who comes out of this movie, I don't know about unscathed, but certainly was having the most fun, was Rinko Kikuchi, who plays a witch. She's the antagonist. She's sort of like the henchwoman 
uh, and she kills people with spiders and turns into a dragon and has this sort of it actually feels like a Choi Hark film who is not Japanese. He is from Hong Kong. Uh, and I don't think Carl Eric Grinch gives a shit. But this movie is just every line of dialogue is horrible. It's the worst why are they not speak why are they speaking English movie since K nineteen, The Widowmaker, where, <laughs> you know, they're all in the sub and they're supposed to be Russian. But here they shot a version in Japanese, but what we see is you know, what I saw at least is the English language version. The dialogue is hilariously stilted. I swear Rinko Kikuchi was dubbed. Um, I mean, it is movie is just an, like a cutthroat island level disaster. The woman next to me, who I will not name by name, not Kate Erbland, who may be listening to this and was sitting next to me, the woman on the other side of me, uh, who I know to have very low standards, booed loudly when it ended. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, I, I am I re- amused by that. This is this is just uh, I feel I feel bad for everybody involved. It's just so bad. Now, if I enjoy Mortal Kombat Annihilation and Elektra, is this the telling of Forty Seven Ronin for me? I mean, <laughs> uh, you have a better chance of enjoying it than most. But <laughs> I Mortal Kombat Annihilation has so much more deliberate flavor to it, <laughs> so much more coherent art direction and style um, that. I this is I fell asleep in this movie for like five minutes. I don't think I missed that much. Um, it's the, all of the action sequences are you know completely incoherent. The reshoots are uh, completely obvious where they are inserted and to what purpose. Keanu Reeves' character was essentially the glue holding this thing together. Is barely a factor in the movie. Uh, Probably see a, Man of Tai Chi over 47 oh, Ronin if definitely. you have yeah. I mean, there's some good – there's nothing quite on the level of You Owe Me a Life. But there's some good – there's some good one-liners in here. But uh, I mean – and it's a problematic and offensive movie. I mean this is – it was going to be from the beginning I think. But they really went out of their way with how they bungled the production to ensure with that opening voiceover and things like it. That it's kind of a fuck you to Japanese culture as well. Not a celebration of it, not an appropriation of it, but just a fuck you. Um, I, I mean, this movie is a travesty. To, it's going to uh, bomb. I, I want to, to wrap up, before the podcast, you asked us if um, you, told, you told us that it might be the worst movie you've ever seen, or one of them, and if we would believe you, because you say that so often. But I do believe you. <laughs> uh, and also, you uh, compared it to uh, other... Other instances in Japanese history? Oh, no. I think I, I said coming out of the movie that it was the, the <laughs> second worst thing to happen in Japan this century. <laughs> but it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but it's... Uh, Put it on the poster. That's the best <laughs> thing we've got. The thing is that, like, you know, you could find movies that have less aesthetically going for it. There's a Miyazaki-like live-action flair to this, which I don't want to say works, but... You know, there's some definitely some crew members involved in this on the technical side that did some strong work. Rinko Someone in fun. the sound department knew what they were doing. That <laughs> yeah. is the best phrase. <laughs> but, but the fact that I find it so racially problematic and culturally problematic, it more than undoes that stuff. And so, you know, one of the it's there are movies out there that are bad for a number of reasons, but this this really it, it's it's really pretty irredeemable, and I think a lot of people involved. So this, this holiday season, do you see Forty Seven oh. Ronin or do you see Saving Mr. Banks? Or take your family to Wolf of Wall Street. You take your family to Wolf of Wall Street. You're better and off just, being embarrassed by Leonardo DiCaprio snorting cokes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Well. I hope you are all enjoying your holidays and not seeing 47 Ronin. We will be back next week with uh, Top 10s. It's time. 47 Ronin will be on my list. I don't know about yours. Yeah. Um, 
in the meantime, tell everybody who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm the writer of the internet. I write the whole thing. And I put I funnel well it I funnel it all into a Tumblr, mattpatches.com. And I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the senior editor of film.com. You can find me on the internet at film.com. You can also find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at film, D-O-T-C-O-M. Oh, I forgot to ask you about the music of 47 Ronin. I'm, oh, I'm totally interrupting. <laughs> uh, it's really, I mean, I remember thinking that while I was watching the movie, like the music is emblematic of how just a little thought went into this whole thing. I mean, it is like, it's hard to imagine somebody writing this down and not, and not coming just from a machine that, you know, it's just like, oh, generic, like, rah, rah, rah. There's no sort of flavor to it. Uh, it's really a mess. I'm sorry to interrupt because you were my film.com reminded me of that thing I wrote about music. Yes. You can read that. Definitely not. Of the 15 best film scores of the year, which uh, is definitely worth a read and a listen. Um, I want that your impression of the 47 Ronin score to be the new Bicorn at the beginning of the podcast. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood. You can also follow that site on Twitter. We need the followers VF Hollywood. Um, you can follow, follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening. Uh, Merry Christmas. And we'll be back talking to you next week.